Hi, this is Tim Winter. Welcome to What Would Dave Do? A digital conversation exploring the leadership experience. You can listen to it at timwinter.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to What Would Dave Do? A podcast exploring the leadership experience. I'm super excited today to have Reggie Weidman joining me. Reggie is a technologist in Portland, Oregon, and uh, not only is he a technologist, but he's also a, uh, somebody I consider a dear friend and uh, somebody I admire greatly. Uh, he's also an advocate for mental health and has really put himself out there. And I'm super excited to have him join us, uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. Reggie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you of course. Ad- you admire me? I do admire you. Wow. <laughs> Made my day. I, I, I think very highly of you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I think I of you as well. I, uh, you know, funny, I, um, just so the audience knows, I, uh, I met Reggie trying to recruit him for, I think, the better part of three years uh, <laughs> to come work for, for me at Metal Tech. So, uh, but over that time, we became very good friends and uh, I understood and uh, why he wasn't coming to work for me, but it was okay. And, uh, you know, I didn't get a, a great employee, but I got a good friend. So uh, it was worth the investment. You got the, you got the better end of that deal. <laughs> so what's been up, man? What have you been doing? Oh, man. Um, I've been doing a whole lot, which is really interesting, considering that I am currently unemployed. Um, but, you know, I decided to take that time um, because it's my time. Uh, to really focus on some things that I, I have been wanting to do. Um, and they were a couple. So one was spending more time with my kids. Um, not to say that I haven't, but it's never enough. Um, two was um, refocusing on my fitness. I actually have a half marathon in a week that I'm potentially ready for. Um, so that's been great. Um, but also just kind of like taking a pause to look at my career and look at how I define myself and where, what I want the next 10 years to look at and focusing on, you know, the project, this is year four um, that I've been working on during the month of May uh, for Mental Health Awareness Month, you know, where I get people to, um, to make videos one minute or less on topics that are important to them. So that's really what I've been focused on. And it's been, it's taken a lot. Oh, I've been doing a lot of public speaking also. By the way, um, people have been actually like hiring me to talk about mental health in the workplace. And I I make sure it's clear to them that I'm not a mental health professional, but for some reason, they still want my perspective. So um, so I've been really, really busy, um, but with things that are really meaningful uh, for myself. So, you know why they want your perspective? Because you're willing to talk about it and you're willing to go out there and, and put yourself out there. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, it, we so in our culture, we're so willing to talk if somebody's sick with cancer, if somebody has some. But if it's mental illness, people don't want to talk about it. Um, we have that own. I have that own that that experience in my own life, in my own family. And, you know, and it's it's to me, in my opinion, and maybe I'm jumping here a little too far ahead, but. I, I'm kind of passionate about it because I think it's kind of cruel. Um, if somebody in our family had cancer, we would rally, we would be there. But mental health is kind of pushed under the carpet. And and I watch the, the, the 
well, I have a family member, I won't mention names, that deals with bipolar. And I watch the manic highs and I watch the very, very sad lows. And yeah. it's, it's, um, it's, it's sad in my opinion. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, you just don't talk about it. And so you uh, and your willingness to talk about it is why people want to hear what you have to say. And, uh, you know, congratulations and thank you. Uh, for, for putting yourself out there and for bringing up the topic. That's very nice of you. You know, I'm, I feel like we're, I want to add mental health to the, the category that I've always called bad, which is uh, bankruptcy, abortion, and divorce, which are all topics that most people won't bring up. But if anyone brings it up, everyone has a connection. Right. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? That's so true. <laughs> and I think it's just really interesting, right? Because it's like, they feel like taboo topics, just like mental health. But if you talk about it, all these hands raise, you know? And I discovered that the first year that I did, and I know we're, like, we're already jumping ahead, but the first year that I did Mental Health Awareness Month, it was just me, so there were no other people. Um, and I would get all these like direct messages from people on social networks saying, you know, I was just dealing with a crisis myself. Um, you know, I, you know, really struggling with this. I just started taking medication for that. And these were all things like people I know, people I've worked with, right, in professional capacities that I had no idea. And, you know, it's also in my business, so there's a reason why I had no idea. But the fact that, like, me just talking, you know, and I'm not, I don't even talk about, like, clinical stuff. I'm just like, here's, you know, here are ways to stay happy. Here are ways to focus on your joy, right? Yeah. I'm not, you know, it wasn't until I started including other people that we really started talking more about, like, clinical diagnoses and and what have you so it's been really interesting what was the spark what i i, I what was the spark uh for you what was your journey why why mental health why why did you you know it's um it, it won't be what you think so <laughs> so i started doing it during the pandemic so that part makes sense right yeah um and but the reason that i did was because before the pandemic if I'm being honest with myself, I was actually really struggling with like a lot of like weighty emotional stuff that I hadn't come to terms with. And when the pandemic hit, you know, so I, I was in jobs where I traveled more than 50%. Um, I was recently divorced, you know, I had lots of, 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 of stuff, right? And, and I wasn't spending enough time with my kids um, or my mom. And then, uh, the pandemic hit and everything shut down and suddenly all I could do was deal with myself. And so I started dealing with myself and I started exercising and I started reading and I started focusing and, and I got really happy. <laughs> I really found and connected with joy. And, but then I noticed that like, that was not the case for most people around me. <laughs> most people were really, really struggling. Um, that I was connected to. And so that, that was the impetus for it. It was, it was, you know, I think a lot of people would just assume that like I was struggling and decided to share my struggle, which is a very noble thing to do, but that was not the case. It was like, I had actually, I had been struggling and the closing off of the world gave me the space to really deal with myself and, 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 and get better. And so I wanted to share that with other people. It's interesting you say that because I've had a lot of guilt. Um, you know, I, I know so many people struggled during the pandemic and I know kids in school and I know we lost so many people to the pandemic. 
Yeah. Um, I, I felt like I personally flourished mm -hmm. during the, much like you, uh, my mother had had a massive heart attack, uh, needed two stints in her heart. It was, it was literally the widow maker and, uh, she survived. And, um, when I, when she finally got done out of her surgery and I went into the hospital room and, and she looked at me, she said, it's time to sell the house. Uh, she had a big 3000 square foot house up on acreage up in, in uh, Hawkinson Valley. Mm. And, and she lived there since the seventies and wouldn't sell it. And, you know, she's in her eighties and I said, mom, you got, you got to sell it. And um, she'd always say no, but after her heart attack, she's like, I want to sell it. Yeah. Well, trying to sell a house and move somebody out of a house that size during the pandemic was a real challenge. <laughs> uh, the Goodwill was not taking donations. Nobody was coming to a house to a garage sale. Um, I mean, all these issues that just were really, and then also just dealing with my mom and she had to live with us for six months and which was really a joy to be honest and to be able to take care of her and give back. Um, I had left my company, a long story I won't bore you with, but I was in a position where I had a pretty good, um, I had a pretty good landing. And so I wasn't working. My wife was fully employed. Her company stayed, you know, virtual and stayed opening, uh, stayed open. Um, and I was able to sell my mom's house, go through everything that she really wanted. Um, I was able to spend a lot of time, much like you, on myself. I think I became a better person. Uh, I think it, it forced me to slow down. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like our family and I feel like I personally really flourish and I have a lot of guilt, uh, because that's not the story for most. No, there are people who are, who were very damaged during the pandemic and are still, you can feel it, right? Like when you just interact with people, like, like just strangers, you're like, everybody's a little on edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but that's an interesting question. So do you think that's a mind set? Do you think that's, do you think they were that way pre-pandemic? Is that, uh, because, you know, my impression in our, through our, our getting to know each other and becoming friends over the years, I mean, you've always been this positive kind of force, right? I mean, I've always enjoyed your energy. I've always enjoyed being around you. Um, and I think that I think of myself, I, I tend to be a more positive. I can be very cynical, but I tend to be a more positive person. Um, do you think that's mindset or do you think, it, it just affected everybody differently. I think it affected anybody differently, but I think a universal is that, um, you know, the human mind and the human spirit can only take so much. And because we had, we didn't, you know, until more recently have much of a focus on mental health, everybody was just coping and you can just yeah. cope for a long time. Right. And what, think about it, like in your life, there have been people who were just coping and then something happens medium or big and they just lose it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it, I think it was kind of a collective losing it. Like, I think just like everybody was losing it over, over the same topic, you know, and then we pile on with social justice issues um, and social justice conversations that we've all been avoiding and can no longer avoid. And yeah, I think that everybody's just like, Losing it. <laughs> it, it was a lot. Yeah, it, 
It was a lot. And I will tell you, the uh, if there was any hard part for us, it was we lived in downtown Portland at the time in all of 2020 in all of 2021. And, you know, we, we experienced all of it and um, the deterioration. We, we, we experienced it all. And, um, uh, you know, we were at ground zero. We lived on Third Avenue, uh, two blocks from the Justice Center. So, uh, yeah, you were over at the house. You, you yeah, were, yeah. So we were at ground zero. And um, even then, I don't know. I, I yeah, it, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There was just a lot going on. And I think how you absorb that or dealt with that. And again, I'm speaking from, you know, my, I had a golden parachute. I, I you know, I had a, a, a spouse who was working full time. Um, I had a good family unit. I had a marriage. Uh, uh, um, my son was healthy. So I, I, I fully, it's not, I don't realize that I, you know, I'm very fortunate. So, yeah. but I don't also, you know, I also worked very hard in my life. So I, 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 I bookend that with that. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm so, I just, you know, A, I'm really proud of you, but B, I, I love the fact that you're, you know, even on this, even here, you're getting me to open up on some things that I don't normally talk about. So uh, I, I think that's really, um, Maybe you have a gift there, and, and maybe that was your calling uh, to talk about this stuff. But I, again, I appreciate it. Um, so when you go in, what's your biggest aha when you go into someone or you speak on it? What, what's the biggest aha that you've taken now that you've done it a few times? I mean, the, the biggest if anyone wants to listen to me, <laughs> I would say, um, you know, I think I'm thinking about the last couple that I did. I think the biggest, this isn't quite an aha, but the, the, the biggest takeaway for me has been that there's always somebody who needed an opportunity to talk, right? And so, you know, when I did one, um, the, the first one I did, I'm, I'm not going to mention the companies, um, mm-hmm. it, was a, it, was a, it was a local tech company, and... Uh, and, and this, there was a man on the call who spoke up and he started talking about like a lifelong struggle with um, ADHD and like how it's made him feel about himself and feeling inadequate. And I was incredibly impressed that like he's on this call with his coworkers and leaders in his organization talking to this stranger and just like get, digging deep about 20 year struggle with ADHD. And, you know, the first 10 of it, not even knowing that's what he had and then having it and trying to figure out how to navigate it and how hard it's been, and how it's still a daily struggle. And I'm always just blown away. I mean, we were kind of talking about that earlier, that that, that, that people are, are, are just looking for an opportunity to open their mouths, right, and say these things. Um, and then the, the, the one I did more recently, which is which for a large, large tech company, um, was uh, there was a woman on there who opened up about the fact that um, her son's best friend uh, the day before, uh, had attempted suicide mm. and how it had impacted her and her son and helping, you know, the other person's family and supporting them. Um, and like, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me that, and she said, she's like, I'm so thankful for this because I probably wouldn't have talked about it. Not because I was unwilling, but like, when do you talk about it? And, and it just happened that, uh, her, manager had reached out to me the week before and said, Hey, will you come talk to the team? And we put it together and I went and gave this talk for the team. 
and just the serendipity of that. But then realizing if you look at statistics, I mean, there's probably somebody on every team at any point of the week that is attached to a scenario like that, whether it's one or two degrees of separation. So, um, so for me, I guess the aha is that like everybody wants to talk about this stuff. They really, really do. They just don't know um, when it's appropriate to. And I think my argument is always. Yes. And I, you know, it's a great segue to, for the leaders out there and for the people leaders out there and for the HR leaders out there that, you know, one of the responsibility of leadership, if you have people reporting to you is to know these, you don't need to know the, the detail, the, the deep, dark details of it, but you need to be aware of what your people are going through. And the only way that you can become aware of what your people are going through is by talking to them and by getting to know them on a personal level. Um, we had an executive retreat yesterday and uh, we went through, it was with the table group, which I love. And um, I love their work. I love everything Patrick does. Um, one of my favorite business books is Getting Naked um, and not for the reasons you think. Um, <laughs> it is, um, it, it is because of everybody I've ever admired in sales, it's the approach that they take. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but we had to tell, we had to tell, you know, where we grew up in uh, and, and something that happened in our childhood that had a big impact on us and whatever that was. And it, you know, it's so uncomfortable for a lot of people to do that and to be humble and to be um, uh, vulnerable. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was the last to go and I thought, Ooh, maybe, I, maybe I'll just talk about, you know, growing up, whatever. Uh, with a single mom yeah. and um, I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to be really vulnerable here. I'm going to put it out there. And uh, you know, the biggest, because it's true, the biggest impact I've ever had on my childhood was when my father committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time my mother didn't know. And of course she didn't talk about these things. So she, she hid it for a long, long time. Um, all the kids in the neighborhood were talking about it. So I was getting all these mixed signals and it, you know, it wasn't until later in life when I actually went and looked for the autopsy. Um, and when I actually found it and, and actually had this really weird experience where I, um, the, the county coroner uh, who performed my father's autopsy was still the county coroner. Um, when I went to look, yeah. And he remembered me. He's like, were you the little one or the bigger one? I was like, I'm the little one. And, and he's like, oh, I always thought you might call me one day. Wow. Uh, and, and there it was. And I just decided, but, be, but being that vulnerable, and it's okay. I mean, I understand, and I'll probably have a whole bunch of HR people screaming at me. But I think, you know, if you have people who are reporting to you, you, you need to know. And if they're going through something, you need to know so that you can either provide the space or the outlet for them to, uh, so that they can get better, so that they can be a better productive employee and do better work. Yeah. And I think like what you described, so I would, I would argue that the vulnerability is part of a two-step process for, and the second step is, is modeling. And so first you're vulnerable, which means that you're willing to talk about things that are dear and personal. Um, and then, and then, but you're also then modeling that behavior for other people because realistically, 
if I report to you and I don't have psychological safety with you, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but I'm not going to like say, Hey, Tim, I'm struggling with some things and I think I just need to take a day off and, you know, I'm going to get a therapist and I'm going to, I'm going to work through these things, but like, I need, I need somebody to help out with this project and I need to take a day and go figure it out. Like, I'm not going to be comfortable talking about that because I don't want to get fired. I don't want to get judged. Right. Right. Um, But once you model the behavior of vulnerability that we're going to, that we're going to be open and, and we can be our whole selves and still do good work together. That's when you get the outcome you want. You know, it frustrates me when people go through hard times and then the leader's like, why didn't they ever talk to me? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, why didn't they ever talk to you? That's a question for you, not for them. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's easy to pawn it off though, right? What's what we do? It's what yeah. we do. I mean, so you know that like so my big thing, and I, and I almost get angry every time I talk about it, and I'm not actually angry at anyone, which just makes it funny. But when it comes to leadership, I realize that like for me, it's all it's all distilled down to one attribute, which is accountability. And the problem with accountability is that we have defined it as this mutual engagement. Right. So like I report to you and we're accountable to each other. Right. So you're accountable for taking care of me and I'm accountable for, you know, you know, putting, you know, the the company needs and your needs ahead of my own and letting you know what I need and letting you know what I'm stuck with and, and yada, yada, yada. But that's not really how it works because I work for you. You can fire me. You can promote me. You can marginalize me. Right. There's a power dynamic that leaders tend to want to pretend isn't there. Right. And so, from, so what I've kind of discovered is that accountability flows one way. It flows top down, right? Like if somebody reports to you, they are not accountable to you. How could they be, right? They have to do work that's dependent on other leaders who they don't report to. That's dependent on other subordinates who report to leaders that they don't report to, right? They have mm-hmm. to navigate all of that, right? They, they work for you, right? So really, to me, accountability is something that you give to your subordinates, not the other way around, not accountable to you. You're accountable to them. That's the only way it can work unless we're peers. Like you and I are on the same level, but even in that scenario, if we actually got specific, like let's say you and I are both executives, but you need something from me, well then I have the power. (laughs) So I'm accountable to you in that scenario. So it always flows from the power down. Um, and I, I've always been really frustrated. I've not always been because I didn't get it. But I've recently, as I, as I worked through it, become really frustrated with this notion of mutual accountability or that I can be accountable to someone who has more power than me, right? That's, that's, it's just not the case. Like, I'm not accountable to the police. The police are accountable to me. Like, it's not my job to make the police feel safe. <laughs> it's their, literally their job to make me feel safe. Right. But for some reason, to protect and serve. Yeah. But for some reason, we turn those into mutual things. I know I'm going on a social justice angle, but the analogy works. Like for some reason, we landed in this place where it's like, well, you have to behave a certain way so that, you know, the cop feels like they're safe. And I'm like, why? They're a cop. They have a gun. (laughs) They've been trained. I'm not a cop. I'm just a guy walking down the street. Right. Right. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that, like, I get to do whatever I want. It just means let's really call accountability what it is and define it. Well, and I think and I think and I think you'll agree with me on this. Maybe not. But that is where civility comes in. 
And when we, when, when there are norms within civilizations within, and there's a certain way and a certain right, and then everybody can do their role. I think when that gets a little off balance, this is when you get the, 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 the imbalance is what causes it. But I do agree with you that you're right. Protect and serve. It's on every police car in every city in America. And well, we have to be careful with norms, though, right? Because, because you know, norms are. I mean, I agree with your intent, but but norms are. Well, pick it apart because you're great at it. So pick it apart. Well, well norm, norms are problematic, right? Because once we define a norm, we're basically saying anything that exists outside of that is abnormal, right? And that's really problematic, sure. right? Sure. If the norm is that we communicate in English and I don't speak English, that should not be something that holds me back from getting treated properly. But it often is, right? If the norm is, you know, that I don't behave erratically, but I have a neurological disorder that causes me to behave erratically, that should not be cause for me to be treated unfairly, right? So like, like I agree with the intent of norms. And I think to your point about civilized society, we have to have them. I would argue that we have to constantly re-examine them, which is that's where, particularly as Americans, we fail. That we fail to constantly re-examine our norms. Like an analogy I use in my presentation to sort of shock people into a different way of thinking, there's a part where I'm talking about the rules and how we should always re-examine the rules that govern how we work, right? Um, because you end up in this place where you have rules. And I talk about being a consultant. I come into a company. And I'm like, well, why do we do it that way? And they're like, well, because we've always done it that way. And I'm like, but like, based on what? Like, says who? And it's like, nobody can tell you where the original decision was that this is how we're going to do X, Y, or Z, right? But they just do it that way, right? And so the analogy I give them is I, I say, does anyone here know why uh, farm workers are excluded from labor laws? And everybody's just like kind of looks confused. And I'm like, does anyone know here know why farm workers don't have to be paid minimum wage, um, don't have to be provided with health care, um, don't are not allowed to form unions? Does anybody know? And they're like, no. And I was like, because every time Congress updates labor laws to like add some value, um, you know, for people at the lowest end of, of, of wage earners, basically, uh, they, they consistently exclude farm workers. Does anybody know why? And they're like, no, we don't know why. I'm like, because there was a point in time when that work was free. And then when it wasn't free and you had to pay them anymore, there was one group of people who were really good at it. And they were formerly enslaved people. So when they started passing the labor laws, the first like labor laws, they didn't want to provide those benefits to those formerly enslaved people. So that's why farm workers are exempt from labor laws. So wouldn't you all agree that that those are rules we should probably revisit? <laughs> well, perhaps, you know, <laughs> listen, we do it in other parts, right? When in yeah. the NFL, when field goal kickers started kicking 60-yard field goals, they moved the extra point back, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're not playing the same rules. Football gear has changed. Footballs have changed. Fields have changed. If we were still playing the rules, rules that we played in 1950 NFL, the scores would be 500 to, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It, 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 makes, it makes perfect sense. 
it, you know, it goes back to, I've talked about this before, but it, this is the one that just, and you'll know this, but this is the one that just drives me insane, is the word computer and where it came from and who wrote the first uh, computer code. It was a woman. Hmm. I didn't know that. And they're called computers because during the war, all of the women, the men went off to war and the women went into the, the, the war department and they would compute the supplies and the ammunition and blah, 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 and the, and the, and the soldiers and all of it. They would compute manually because we didn't have computers. Mm -hmm. And they would compute. So they called them computers. <laughs> well, that does make sense. Right? <laughs> and then somehow they kind of got left out of it because the war ended. They went back and the men took over. But the first code, and, and I'm going to, I got to, I should Google it as we're talking, but I'm not going to. Um, Ida, her, I believe her first name was Ida. And it's a really great story. And for anybody in the audience, go Google it, look it up. It's fascinating. The first um, uh, piece of code is brilliant. And it is, um, you know, that there, there was a movie out about that where the, the, the NASA bought this big computer, but they didn't know how to make it work. IBM loved the hardware. Everybody was impressed with it. But what does it do? And there was a woman who made and figured out how to make it work. Ida Rhodes. Ida Rhodes. <laughs> Thank you. But to your point, to your point, I, I think this is the bigger point. And, and thank you for the history lesson on the farm workers. Here's the better, and this is what drives me crazy. I, look, I am a fierce independent. I, 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 I don't subscribe to any party. I'm a fierce independent. But what I, what I, what I hate is that people do not get educated on the issues. What I hate is that people don't know their history. And you, the history lesson you just gave us is uh, on that is, is brilliant. And you're right. Um, I, sta I, I stand corrected, incorrected. I, I, I agree with you that the rules have to be revisited. And the world has changed. And we do have people, you know, um, years and years ago, there was, you know, uh, the, the crazy homeless person on the street, they grabbed him, put him in jail. Or they would get, to, you know, today I think we're realizing, no, it can be a productive citizen, but we need to get them the help. And that's okay. And as a civilized society, we should be able to figure out how to do that. Well, it's because what we're, we're bad at is we're bad at multi-layered problems, right? Because when you talk about, you know, like a household person on the street, like, what are the things you have to address? You have to address potentially mental health. You have to address potentially addiction. You have to address um, how we manage healthcare in the society, in, in American society, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, how we uh, are dealing with the, the housing crisis in and of itself. And so I think what happens for a lot of people, like, well, Americans, we really just need wedge issues. Like, we've been trained by our politicians to just, like, focus on wedge issues, right? So, like, in that example I just gave, it would just be about crime, right? Got to stop crime. we got to be tough on crime. Like, nobody would be talking about, you know, the, the, the houselessness or 
uh, mental health issues or, you know, rampant drug addiction. Like we wouldn't talk about it. It's just like, we gotta be, you know, we gotta, you know, I'm sorry for whatever they're going through, but we gotta get them off the street. Like we gotta make it safe. Right. And then how, and the only solution is we put them in jail. Right. So that's, that, that's it. So that's the only solution. But if we actually take a different angle of approach, we can find better solutions, but those things take time, right? Like if we actually had an effective process for drug treatment, that would make a difference, but it would take like 10, 20 years. Right. These are generational things. These yeah. And, and that's not what feels good. What feels good is electing a new politician who's going to be tough on crime. That feels good because then I can stop thinking about it. <laughs> and I think that's like that's, that's or, or, or let's go back a page you know give them a tent okay there oh I feel good yeah <laughs> oh okay you can you can camp anywhere that didn't fix the problem we spent no. so much you know I think that I and I don't know the exact stats but Multnomah County spent like four million dollars on tent and PDOT spent like four million dollars throwing tents away <laughs> yeah it's 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 such a circular, ridiculous, and it didn't solve anything. Giving people a tent didn't solve because, to your point, there's a multi-level issues that are are, are happening, whether yeah. it's drug, uh, drug addiction or whether it's it's um, intergenerational sex abuse, whether it's it, it's mental health. There's so many layers to that, and you've got to be able to 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 get and and think broadly. Um, if you're going to solve the problem, yeah. uh, unfortunately we tend to throw money at it and then the money gets misused and the problem doesn't go away or it gets exasperated. Well, I mean, you can't solve a problem throwing money at a solution that isn't actually the solution or often isn't actually the problem. Right. Right. So right. it's, uh, it's tough. It's, it's tough. But I think the only way through is for us to learn how to be nuanced. We used to actually be able to handle nuance in this country, um, and we just can't anymore. No. It's really bizarre. No, we've become so, you know, on, on either side, you're either with us or against us, and it, it used to not be that way. And that's how you got to real problem solving, right? Because I can understand where you're coming from. You can understand where I'm coming from. Let's find that solution. And we're just not there. And, and, and you're so right just hiring a new person isn't going to do that this is this is a this is something that has built over a, a long period of time and and i do think getting people back involved i do think getting people voting i do think educating people i do think some of that can certainly help and i think getting people involved and i think just having the conversation like you're having whether it's you know a huge national platform or you just affect one person but having this conversation and you being willing to put yourself out there is, is the step in the right direction. So bravo to you for, you know, lots of people can point out all the problems, but they're, they're unwilling to at least try to make a change. And you are at least attempting and putting yourself out there to try to help. So bravo, my friend. Well, thank you. So let me ask you this. So you're going into these companies and you've been in the tech space for a long time. How do you think leadership or has your philosophy of leadership changed from like the first time when you and I met, I was new at Metal Toad. You were, I don't even think we'd moved into Fifth Avenue yet. We were still, or, or yeah, we weren't at Fifth Avenue. We were still down on uh, yeah, Third Avenue. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I remember that office on Third. Yeah. Um, 
You know, it's for me. It's been it's been stair steps over the over the years. It's like I've um, had some key unlocks as a leader. And in the first, I think, well, the first most recent that's worth discussing, um, it cracks me up because my first big shift was uh, before I really, really got into like executive leadership. I was always the person complaining about leadership. It's like, you know, they're making things too complicated, you know, <laughs> and like, they're afraid to take risks. And, you know, we're going to talk about things all day or we're going to take action. Right. And then once I was in leadership, I was like, oh, yeah, these are really complicated topics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, if we just do the thing that I think we should do, it causes causes all these cascading problems in the other parts of the business that have to be accounted for. Um, and so, yeah, we should take our time to figure out this the right way. And then I'm on the other side and talking to somebody who's like, why don't we move faster? And I'm like, well, there are many complicated issues, you know. So that was <laughs> the first experience I had um, where I, I really started to like look at leadership in a different way. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is, you know, your heroes and your villains in life constantly shift, right? And so before that realization, um, my heroes were those decisive leaders who were like always like just making a decision and moving things forward. And my villains were the ones who were like hemming and hawing and wringing their hands and trying to figure things out, right? Mm -hmm. So with that shift, I'm like, okay, so what success or not success, successful or not successful, the ones who were hemming and hawing and trying to figure things out were actually being very thoughtful, right? They were actually acknowledging all the different outcomes. They were being vulnerable and expressing that like they didn't have the answer. Right. And that they needed to figure this out. And the ones that were just like making calls, those were narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, no, I see that now. Like, yeah, like that guy I was impressed with who just like walked into the room while we were debating what to do and said, we're doing this and then walked out. That's a terrible leadership style. <laughs> so that was like the first big uh, thing for me. And then the second that I hint that, well, actually, and you're asking like how things have changed. So between the, my first and second examples, I'll talk a little bit about how things have changed. The one thing that I am happy about because it benefits me is um, I years ago had like a coach and the coach like did this, like, you know, gave me this test. And at the end of the, after she reviewed it, she's like, okay, so you have an empathic leadership style. And I was like, all right, what's that mean? And she's like, well, most men have an authoritarian leadership style. And you have an empathic leadership style, which is more common in women. And I, my response was, okay, so how do we fix it? <laughs> and she was like, what? I was like, how do we fix it? And she's like, she's like, you don't fix it. Like, this is your, this is who you are. Um, and I was like, I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to be able to get ahead in this company that I was working at with an empathic leadership style. And she said, well, maybe you should work somewhere else. <laughs> I'm like, okay, they hired you for me. You know that, right? So, uh, <laughs> so, so, like, but what's been, and, and I did, I do think that that has been a limitation for me throughout my career, not a limitation in my ability to be successful or to be happy at work, but a limitation in my career progression, like to get promoted and to be seen as someone who can lead teams. Um, it's been a limitation. Um, but I'm, I've been seeing that shift like over the last, like, say five to eight years, sure. right? Where it's actually starting to become valued. And mostly it's trailblazers. It's because there are women, there are more women leaders, right? Um, showing that, that you can lead people a different way. 
Um, and that has benefited me, right? As anytime uh, you take a more marginalized group and put them in positions of power, it benefits everyone, right? So, uh, so, so more women in leadership's roles in the workforce has benefited me because it sees the way that I lead as a valid way of leading. <laughs> um, and so that's been really valuable for me because it, it was really hard. And now I think people view my leadership style as like desirable, right? Um, well, but- and I also think that, you know, I think Simon Sinek speaks of a of that type of leadership. I think it's servient leadership, which I think over the over the you know last ten years has really had uh, you know an understanding that it's more effective in the long run. In the short term, being a narcissist, do as I say, not as I do, get it done. Sure, you can get short term results. I've seen it, uh, but it's not. You're not. You, it's not scalable. You're not going to build something that you know. The question is. Do you want to build something timely or something timeless? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there's that. And then I would say um, the second thing that I've seen and I, and I referenced it earlier has really been um, that sense of accountability. And when I see as a trend, like I'm not saying that I'm seeing that leaders are owning accountability more than they used to. I'm seeing a backlash when they don't, right? Mm, so you're seeing, yeah. you know, and you see it all throughout the workforce, like quiet quitting, like yeah. the whole nine yards. Like if you aren't willing to be an accountable leader who's accountable to the people and recognizing the power dynamic that you're in control of, um, it's gonna be problematic for you. It's gonna be really problematic. Um, people are just gonna leave. Like gone are the days that I'm just gonna stay in a job out of loyalty, even though I don't feel like I'm being treated fairly. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there, that's <laughs> there. That day of reckoning has come. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the workforce is, you know, I mean, it hasn't been happening for a long, long time. My generation, it was. You stayed with a company for 20, 30 years. You got the gold watch. You had your little pension. You got your Social Security and you lived a decent life. You sold, you know, you had the equity in your home and that's how it worked. And you lived out your life until you died. And that just is not the, the way it works anymore. You had good bosses, you had ba- bad bosses. Um, yeah. And you were happy when you had a good boss and ah, I got a bad boss this time. And, you know, it was, it, it, and bosses come and go. And yeah. it just doesn't work that way today. People, yeah. people today, I, I know there was a company on the East Coast and they, the CEO put out an edict that everybody needed to return to the office by X date. And they had this mass resignation. I mean, people didn't say no. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't think leaders today are prepared for that. And I do think that being an empathetic leader would be, um, it would be very, it is very beneficial. Cause so, so that's, you know, there's a lot of work going in. I talk about this a lot. Uh, the Taylor group is doing some amazing work uh, in this area about the future of work because mm-hmm. the workplace changed newsflash and to, to your point of the workplace has changed work has changed we're not going to get away with having legislation that doesn't support farm workers yeah. not going to be okay anymore um People yeah. are not going to just line up. They're either going to find new work, 
Um, and I think for the first time in a long time in the history of the world, uh, or at least in, in the United States, people want joy out of their work because they can have it. Well, can I? Can yeah, I, please. No, I don't think people want joy out of the work. I think people want their work to stop interfering with their joy. Ah. Which, which doesn't mean you don't get joy from work, but like, you don't have to, right? Um, ah, and I think, okay. Yeah. I think it's really, it's a really important distinction, right? Because I think that, you know, it allows you to look at the workforce very differently. Like, I think there's certain corporate cultures that looked at the person who was like, I'm here to like do a job. Like they don't want to go to happy hour, right? They don't want to like, you know, schmooze with people. They don't want to do anything more than what's in their job description. Like we look down on those people. Like, well, you know, what's wrong with them, right? But like, if that's how they are, that's how they are. And then there's other people who are very social, you know, who like want to like have that interpersonal connection with everybody they work with. Neither model is wrong, but depending on the type of company, you got penalized for whichever of those camps you might fall into and not to imply that those are the only two. Um, because, but, but I really think it's about joy. And I think if for me, my joy is earning enough money that I can donate to nonprofits that are meaningful to me, um, that I can get, you know, take my kids on killer vacations that will be lifelong memories for them. Like that's my joy. Right. So if I have a job that lets me do that, you know, I, some people won't care what that job is, right? <laughs> you know, but, but on the other hand, if I have a job that's like I'm working every weekend, you know, or I had to cancel my vacation because this project came up that like I had to take care of the client, you know, or I don't even have time to enjoy the fact that I'm getting to support this nonprofit that I love, like that's a problem. And I think that's what people are putting their foot down about. And I think that also applies back to the, the work from home thing. So I think as a leader, when you look at that problem, you need to look at it with the nuance of how it's impacting your workforce. Like, I think the main issue is for those leaders who insist that people come back to the office is they believe that collaboration works better in person, right? Well, neurodiversity would tell you that that's true for some, but not true for all, right? So that's one. They're thinking about the fact that they've made this real estate investment, right? And that they're not getting the ROI on that real estate investment if people aren't actually using the office. Right. Sure. But we make decisions about how we determine the value of things all the time. <laughs> we change what, what is valuable and what isn't valuable all the time. So why not just reimagine what the office looks like? Why not, you know, there's plenty of companies who've done really cool hybrid models where they've given up their office and have an expanded relationship like with a WeWork type situation. Like there's lots of things. And maybe for your company, everybody being in the office is the right move for the success of the company. But I just hope that they be looking at it through a holistic lens and not through one or two KPIs, right? Because there's so many things, you know, I've talked, I actually gave a talk once and it was like right on the tail end of like shutdown, right? We were starting to reemerge and they were talking about people going back to the office. And a point that I made was I made that I, I at one point had worked with um, a trans woman and she was in transition when we hired her. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it hit me that like we hired this person during a pandemic, like would they have even applied for the job if it wasn't the pandemic and they knew that they would want hundred percent be working from home? Like how, what a difficult thing to ask of someone as they're going through 
a physical transition to have to come to the office and let people witness it, which is something we have asked of people for years now. But having the opportunity to not do that, like having the opportunity to get the productivity that we need from someone, but allow them to go through that experience in the privacy of their own home, like that's amazing. Right. I mean, there are people who probably have to exit the workforce to go through that process. Yeah. And I think that that I think that that I, I would I would I'd look at that even higher and go that see, to me, that's culture. And it doesn't you know, it doesn't have to be work from home. It doesn't have to be. I know there was one time at, at Metal Toad where we had uh, it was a horrific situation a horrific situation that one of our employees went through. And um, I remember he was very concerned about the amount of vacation mm-hmm. that he had. And I went to their house because I was invited to their house. And um, um it was it was probably one of the most emotional things I've ever been through, and I looked at his family and I and I pulled him aside, and I said, I, I don't care how much vacation you have, take as much time as you need, and I don't know how long that's going to be. So, but I got you. Yeah. And the look on his face. And the stress that left, and, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but basically him and his wife had a child, and the child was born with a very rare disease, mm-hmm. and the child from the outside looked very normal, and everything was like a baby, um, but it wasn't going to survive. And they yeah. made the choice to bring the child home and to have as much time as they could. Yeah. But when you're dealing with bereavement policy, you know, like, what's the relationship? And, and, and when you don't know how long of a period of time that is, no, it would have been great if you, right? Like, oh, sure, he's working from home. Uh, yeah, no, no. Like, I don't know. So I think, you know, if you're a, a leader that has empathy and, you're, and, you, and you have the policies that have the leeways to allow for you to be human, and if somebody is going, but but to your point, that's something anybody would talk about, right? They'd come to, I have this situation. Transitioning, maybe somebody wouldn't come to you and say it. And to your point, this created an opportunity and you have this wonderful productive employee who's being able to do the best work they've ever done and go through what they're going through personally. And so, yeah, I get it. I, I, I just, it, it bothers me because I wish more companies, I, I, I'm one of my pet, pet peeves is bereavement policies. I think they're draconian. I think they're barbaric. I read them and, you know, well, if it's your sister, you get two days. If it's a spouse, you get four days. They're crazy. And I don't know who writes these things. Lawyers. (laughs) I guess you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And they're doing the job we asked of them. So that's not even a criticism of lawyers. Oh, I just think they're barbaric. I, I just, like, okay, yeah, it's my grandma, but she raised me. Yeah. Uh, you don't know the relationship that people had with people. I, I just, 
if I say anything on, if you're an HR professional and you're listening to this podcast, go revisit your bereavement policy because I guarantee you it's barbaric. They've got a lot on their plates. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it is a great example though, because it's, it's, it's just one of those things that like we, we put it out there. It goes back to my point about nuance, right? Yeah. Like that we, we, we disambiguate and we choose not to engage nuance because make, engaging nuance does make decision-making harder. It also makes it hard to scale, right? Because like, you know, in your case, you were talking about a company that you were basically running that was what, like 20, 30 people, right? But I guarantee if you were working for a multinational corporation, you could not have guaranteed to that employee that you take care of them. You would have no authority to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah. So I think it's, it's just, it, but nuance really matters. And I think that, I think we just got to be willing to take more risks, you know, Agreed. across the board. Um, and, and I know risk mitigation is super important in corporate models as it should be. But I think that there, there, but there's so many times when we mitigate risk in certain areas and not others, right? Like there are plenty of companies don't mitigate risk in their corporate expense policy, right? They're not paying attention to how the reps are spending the company's money as long as those reps are bringing in money, right? But we're going to choose to mitigate risk in a bereavement policy. Like yeah. why, you know? And I think a lot of companies get around that, you know, I mean, there's a whole other podcast topic on, you know, uh, having uh, paid versus un unlimited vacation. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you know where I, you know where I, now it doesn't work in every industry, but I, you know where I lay, line up on that. I, I'm a fan of, of, of the unlimited. I understand the limitations on the, of the unlimited. And I also understand um, the statistics around people are less likely to take vacation if they have unlimited, which is sort of the secret you know, I work for a company that transitioned from 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 paid to unlimited, um, and 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 I could, I know they did it because the cost savings. They don't have to pay people out when they leave the company, um, and they you don't, don't have, have to track to, it. You don't have to exactly. Which I think, from a manager perspective, that's really important because I think it, it was becoming a problem for people managers to like have to navigate all that stuff. Um, but uh, but I also think that it's the only model that we have that allows for nuance, right? Yep. Like I might take more time this year than I took last year because something happened and, and there was, a, there was a, a, a dramatic change in my personal life, right? Um, like I can manage that, right? Like that's what I like about the unlimited model, um, but I also recognize its, its limitations. If I have to choose between the two, I will always choose unlimited. Because yeah. at least then you're, you're giving power back to the people. I'm deciding what I take and how much I take and when I take it. Based on what's happening in my life. Yeah. And if you go back to what Steve Jobs said, I hire adults and, you know, treat them like adults. Why in the world would you hire smart, amazing people and then put them in a box? Yeah. I mean, and, especially. And, and, uh, and, and unlimited doesn't mean are unapproved. You still have to get it approved. You still have to do what's right for the business, but you you are an adult. I hired a smart person. You're going to do yeah. what you need to do. Yeah, um, and especially considering 
and I'm sure there are probably plenty of people who would disagree with the statement I'm going to make, but l- let's be real. It's so easy to fire people these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy to fire people. And you also like have, you know, insurance so that if, 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 a, if an employee, a former employee sues you, you know, I was actually talking to a leader about that. And he was he was saying he, he had a situation where a former employee was suing the company for wrongful termination. And he sat down with the lawyer and the lawyer looked at it and he's like, we're just going to pay him. And he's like, I don't want to pay him. He's like, well, you have insurance for this. Like, do you really want to like do this? Like, do you really want to fight this battle? <laughs> and so I look at all those different angles and I'm like, well, like, what are corporations really losing here? Right. Like, they're not losing. Like, if somebody's not working out, you get rid of them. If they see you, your insurance will, will cover any costs of them coming at you. Um, and nine out of ten aren't going to do it. Because <laughs> right. it's also going to hurt their ability to re-enter the workforce if there's a, some public chatter about them being a disgruntled employee. So, I mean, like, let's be realistic. Let's engage nuance and let's figure out solutions um, that actually allow people to hold on to their joy while they do work for you that grows your company. Yeah. Perfect, perfect solution. <laughs> go, uh, Reggie, go make that happen. <laughs> Halfway done. Halfway done. <laughs> so look, who's a leader you admire today? Like you've got, like I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've really enjoyed, I, I love how you and I come, uh, you know, at life a little in different uh, perspectives but you know we have so much common ground and i really really do because our common ground is common sense right like yeah be just and, and be human but who's somebody in a what's a leader it, it can be that you admire today so i'm not i'm not going to answer your question the way you want so i apologize in advance but i have you haven't done anything i've asked you to do this entire time. <laughs> so don't start now but I've been thinking a lot about this one. And, you know, for me, it's like women. Like all women. <laughs> and what, I mean, what I mean by that is when I look at my own career um, and I talked about being, you know, an empathic uh, leader and, and how that was something that like basically, you know, corporate culture had to catch up with. Uh, to, to recognize as an actual valid and potentially superior model for managing people. Um, but when I look back over the course of my life, like I look at like my mom who always pushed me to do better and to want more than what the people around me wanted. Um, you know, my high school guidance counselor, Marilyn Yaniger, like she's the only reason I went to college. Only reason. Like, a fun fact about me is I had no intention of going to college and I had no intention of doing the kinds of things that I've been doing with my life for the past 20 years because I didn't actually believe that somebody with my background could, was allowed to do those things, you know? Um, and then I think about my first job even remotely related to tech uh, was for the National Academy of Sciences and I worked for a woman named Jamie Lees and she is the, she said to me, she's like, you know, you've got a knack for this tech stuff. And I was like, no way. I hate tech. And I'm just going to move to Portland and just write the great American novel. And I ended up in tech. Um, and I think, about, you know, and all through my career, you know, there was, you know, Annie Angelo hired me at Salesforce, you know, um, 
Candace Carlson was another leader in Salesforce who's always supported me, always picks up the phone for me if I need help. I literally got a text from, um, from a woman who's trying, she reached out to me. It's like, I want you to come work for my company. And she's been like going back and forth with like the hiring manager and like giving me like tips and stuff. Um, and, you know, a good friend of mine, Heidi Robbins, who's also at Salesforce, like every day checks in with me, like, you know, how's the job search going? What can, who can I connect you with? You know, how can I help you? Um, and, and, you know, and Jennifer Warnick, who I worked with at Linux, has always had my back. Um, and it's, it's something men, we men, need to learn about. Because what's been really interesting about the past couple months, if I reach out to any friend of mine, they will have my back. Like, if I say, I need this, can you help with that? Can we talk? My friends support me. And I value and appreciate all of them. But my female friends reach out to me. Like, they come at me. Like, how's it going? What do you need? And I know it's, you know, we, we probably call it a maternal instinct. And I think that that's, that's uh, dismissive because it's really an attribute that we should all have. And it's what I try to model. Like, I try to, like, I'm not great at it because, you know what, men, we're not great. Like, I think about, I, I remember I had reached out to um, a friend, no, a colleague, and because he's not a friend, because he's a friend, it just doesn't sound like he's a terrible friend. But I reached out to like, a former colleague, and I just let him know that I had applied for something at the company that he works at. And his response was, good luck. And I think it was a heartfelt good luck. Like, I don't think it was, like, dismissive in any way. But if, you, if you're on the other side of that good luck, it feels a little dismissive, right? And I don't think, I know that that's not how he meant it. But, like, I know that, like, most of my female colleagues and connections would be like, what can I do? Who can I talk to? I'm going to look up, you know, I was like, I've ever like, hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm calling the recruiter, right? <laughs> I'm like, you don't have to do that. They're like, no, no, I'm calling the recruiter. Like the way women show up for everyone is pretty impressive. And I think it's an attribute that the rest of us should try to emulate. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you that the namesake of this podcast uh, had that skill. And I have proof of it uh, with over 3,000 text messages and uh, that I will save for the rest of my life. And I go back often and reflect, them, I reflect on them and read them. But mm -hmm. there are many on there where it's just, hey, Tim, how you doing? Yeah. Uh, I saw that thing on LinkedIn. You're, you're killing it whatever it was, no, no need to reply. No, just that. And you're so right. Uh, and when you have that, I think it is, um, it is very special. And when I, when I think of all of the, the women leader that I've worked for, the ones that Jill Taylor at the Taylor group, who I have so much admiration for and Smith at a word Smith, who I have so much admiration for Tracy Lloyd at emotive brands and Oakland, uh, Oakland, California. Um, they're just, you're right. I don't want to dismiss it. I just want to say that they're amazing leaders and uh, I, I enjoy their awesomeness and, and get to enjoy, uh, uh, get to enjoy some of their awesomeness uh, by, by knowing them or have been work or have worked with them. And that check-in or that ability is, is very, very special. Yeah, and it's not to imply that there aren't men who don't do it. There no. certainly are. No, right? no of course. Um, but, like, there's more of them, and they do it better. 
<laughs> well, and everybody can always learn, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's absolutely like, it's, so if there's a leadership trait that uh, men need to emulate, um, that's it. Like we need to like pick that up. Like, can you just imagine that? Like if like every leader had that capacity, again, there are plenty who do, but if every leader was like putting time aside to just like check in with people. Well, right? I, say, I say like, can you just imagine Reggie, a world where everybody assumes positive intent? <laughs> yeah. Which we're I mean, so wired not to. I mean, I can't, but I would love it. <laughs> it would be a utopia for sure. Well, yeah. listen, we're coming up to the end. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. But I'm going to leave it with you on one thing. You can either leave it with, uh, because we are in Mental Health Awareness Month, or a story or a moment when you realize your leadership made an impact? Oof. Um, I got to choose between those No, two you can do whatever you want. <laughs> um, okay. I will say, um, and this just hit me, um, and it's interesting, um, based on the story that you told earlier, um, I was leaving a company and... Um, I was just saying goodbye to like all of my colleagues and uh, and I was, I was doing a call with one of them and he was someone who I had worked with like from day one at that company. And, uh, and he, he shared with me that, and I didn't know this, like, like, like I was, we worked together for almost five years and I was this, I was learning this story like on my last day um, that when we had met, he had just come off of bereavement leave. Um, and, um, and he was just like floating, like he was like working on stuff and just not really engaged. And he goes, and he, he goes, I get assigned to this project, you know, and in walks this guy and he's just like so positive and has all this energy and just engages with me, um, and just really wants to get to know me and really wants my input and really, you know, and, and he, and he was like, basically like, Everybody else was on eggshells, and granted, I didn't even know what, what he, got, you know, what he had been in bereavement for, or that he'd even been on bereavement leave. Um, and and he just he was like he's like you just like treating me like a normal person and just being super positive just helped me get back to being the person I wanted to be, um, and that meant so much to me because that is what I always try to do because it's all I want. Right. I just want to be treated like a normal person. Right. I don't want to be I don't want to be treated better. I don't want to be treated worse. I want to be just part of the human experience. And so that's what I try to offer to anyone that I interact with, whether it's personal or business. Um, but I think sometimes we fail to do that, especially in business. Like we, we fail to, like, make that connection. Um, and so he shared that story with me. Um, and, and it made so many things click because I know that like, I've also, I also could be very demanding and I would always be like asking him, especially at the last minute, you know, can you support me on this project? Can you do this? And he never said no to me, never said no. Um, even probably got in trouble a couple of times for helping me out with stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I get it. And I, I like, that's why, you know, because yeah. I had connected with him on that level that, was really important for me to connect with him on, but I didn't realize how much that he needed it. 
Um, and I think that's, you know, if we tie it all back to mental health, like that is really why it's so important to me, right? Because everybody just needs to feel like they're a part of something. And if it means that we have to start a whole other, you know, YouTube channel called One Minute for Mental Health, so that people who are figuring out their mental health, struggling with their mental health, struggling with mental health, the loved one can go there and see that there's people like them. It, it, it makes the world a better place. So I don't know. Well, I will tell you what, you know, I love you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think the world of you and, um, I have enjoyed having you as a guest so much and I, but I enjoy our conversations all the time and I really value uh, our friendship. I'm glad that we kind of get to run in the same circles again. And, um, you know, thanks for what you're doing, Reggie. And, and thanks for, you know, just being so consistent and staying with it and, and being who you are. And, you know, I love you for who you are and I respect you for the man that you are. And uh, I just value our friendship. And I really, really appreciate you being on the show. You know, Tim, you're not so bad yourself. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, buddy. Um, well, listen, you take care of yourself. Have a wonderful, uh, have a wonderful holiday weekend. And um, let me know if there's anything I can do to help you. And uh, I, I know you're going to call me next week and say, "Oh no, no, I'm working," but um, because I know you, uh, and I know that. Uh, Anybody would be um, thrilled to have you work for them or to get to work with you. So, all right, my friend. Well, listen, have a great one. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for everything you do, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Thank right. you for having me. All right. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye.